Welcome to Voices, a podcast from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. Here, we're seeking to elevate the range of perspectives on the role of business in the world and in people's everyday lives. Hello, everybody. This is Salil Tripathi from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. And I'm here during this somber week of recalling and recollecting the memories of what happened 25 years ago, the execution of the Ogoni 9, Ken Saroviva and his associates, who were executed after what was widely regarded as an unfair and sham trial in the Niger Delta. They were fighting for trying to get pollution reduced in the Niger Delta, and they were campaigning against oil companies, and these were trumped up charges against them. And the international community intervened, but they were not successful. And it changed for many people the whole notion of what business and human rights are all about. I'm going to be talking today with Richard Buller. Richard and I go back a long way. We met many years ago in London when uh, he was with Amnesty International's Business and Human Rights Group at the Amnesty UK, and I worked with Amnesty International. But more important than that, before that, Richard was at Body Shop, the company that spiritedly took on the Ogoni campaign. He's now in Australia, in Sydney, where he works with KPMG, working on environment, sustainability and human rights and trying to make the world a better place. Richard, thank you for joining us. Tell us, what did Ken Saroviva and the Ogonis mean to you? Uh, excellent question, and just your introduction uh, made me reflect in terms of the time and the emotions. Uh, there's no question that they left a very significant impression on me in terms of that dynamic between a corporate actor and communities that experience very real and visceral and fatal consequences of some of those corporate actions. So to, to me, the number one challenge was always, Ken, at the first UNPO, so the Unrepresented Nations and People's Organisation. Now I'm going back now to 1990, 1993, and it was um, January, and you know, it was the General Assembly. There was Ken you know, looking up at me. I was quite a bit taller than he was, and him challenging me on... You know, you know, Shell's performance in, in Agoni, um, saying, look, here's the actions that this company is undertaking and here's the in- impact and the consequences on my people. And and I've got to be honest with you, I, I was listening to this and I just couldn't believe. Mm-hmm. And I didn't believe. And, and he picked that up. He, he, he said, you don't believe me, do you? And I said, I'm sorry, but you know, just my direct experience, I don't understand how such a significant global company could, could act in the way that you're talking about. I, I just cannot reconcile that. And he said, well, mark, mark my words, and in time you will come to understand. And it only took two or three months, and, and that was... Uh, a pipeline being laid in March, uh, and the Nigerian military, because it was a Nigerian, it was a military dictatorship, and that was a joint venture. Yeah, so Shell was a minority shareholder of that uh, that oil company in Nigeria, and the troops were sent in to protect uh, construction workers laying a pipeline. And as a result of peace, peaceful protests, there was tension. Troops opened fire, and people died. And 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 that to me is probably the most significant lasting legacy 
is that that should never happen. We should not have economic actors participating in our economy and our society where there's an acceptance that people need to die for that economic activity to, under, to, to be undertaken. Um, and that, that particular incident itself catalyzed, you know, the voluntary, you know, and made a significant contribution to um, the, the voluntary principles and their awareness in terms of um, you know, other interactions between public security in, in Nigeria and private actors there. Um, but, you know, Shell did. You know, they became the first uh, major multinational to incorporate a commitment to respect human rights into their business principles to use, you know, fast forward to 1997. But for me personally, um, it transformed or sensitised me to an actor that I hadn't appreciated as a major actor in terms of that human rights consequence. You know, my previous experience had been in 1987 in Tibet, you know, where I'd seen you know, Chinese security forces shoot and kill Tibetans who were peacefully protesting in front of me. And that, that was my key first, I guess, you know, deep sensitization to human rights and that sense of responsibility, that sense of having to witness and, and to, to support others in, in having a voice. And then fast forward to you know, everything that Ken taught me, um, and and I'll have to be fair, you know, there, there was a two-way conversation, though, because, you know, there were things which Ken asked me to do that I just said, no, you know, if, if we're going to be successful in your voice and the Agoni voice being heard, um, you know, this is the approach. And, and, and some of that was around, I guess, you, you'll appreciate that, is, you know, Ken saying, Ken but in Nigeria, if we say in the press that 10 people have been killed, everyone automatically discounts it to five. That's why we have to say 10. And I said, well, here it's different. If yeah. I say 10 and it subsequently comes out that it's five, no one's ever going to believe another press release or, you know, read another story coming coming from us as a source again. Whereas if we say it's one and then it increases, we, we get multiple stories. So there was that real difference around the, the context and how to, you know, how to tell the story of, of what the Ugandan people were experiencing. But for me personally... You know, I, I would not be here today doing what I'm doing um, if it hadn't been for that um, very intense, short but very intense um, and but very privileged um, opportunity to work with Ken and, and Mossop and the Ugandan people. Right. Tell me about the Body Shop campaign itself. How was it conceived? How was it designed? And how did you work on that? Well, it started, I mean, my, my direct relationship started when um, Ken we were. Uh, yeah. So we were son was sent to Chogan, yeah, Commonwealth Heads of Government That's meeting, right. which was in Auckland in New Zealand, yeah, in, in November 1995. So we are talking exactly you know, exactly 25 years ago. And and I, and Body Shop asked me because my position at UMPO had been supported by them, and Nita had funded that position and supported that position. But I'd left UMPO, and and uh, they they called me and they said, Richard, we need a campaigner to go and support Ken. Uh, and that's what I did. Is, you know, I was in the middle of Australia, packed bags, got on a plane, flew, flew to New Zealand, had two or three days to prepare. And it was extraordinary. The body shop locally just said, what do you need? You know, they set me up with an office. They set me up with um, people, you know, a team. Uh, and uh, I got ready to receive Ken. And then we went on a campaign you know, with prime ministers and foreign ministers. Uh, to speak about what we thought was about to happen, um, and as you as you as you pointed out in the introduction, Thuriel, uh that was unsuccessful. You know, it, it wasn't just that Ken Thurio and the other eight were executed; it was that they were executed during children, and yeah. it was it was that 
Yeah, that if you like, thumbing um, of the Nigerian military dictatorship. Um, you know, that, you know, if you like, um, thumbing world to world opinion, not caring about world opinion, almost um, almost daring the world to do something that that resulted in those in those terrible terrible deaths being on the front page the following day. Yeah. Um, so that led that led to me then being invited to um, go and join the body shop in in the UK. So that that then was what I did, and that campaign was about the Agony nineteen. So and yeah. which was then subsequently the Agony twenty. So it was you know you talked about them as trumped up charges. Um, there, there were a set, and there was an additional. There was a subset of those that were actually being applied to another twenty, what were largely regarded as um, uh, both activists. And it's fair to say, I think some of them, you know, they weren't necessarily directly activists. They weren't sort of office holders in Mossop or. Formally, they were just sweeped up in, into a group that were, that were targeted. And that was the focus of when I arrived at the body shop in, in December 1995. That was my focus was the Ugoni 20. Uh, and, and, you know, we had a, I was very pleased to say that we were able to see them all released. And that was probably one of my highlights in my whole career mm. <laughs> is, is to receive the... Um, you know, to receive one of them in my home and have him stay with me overnight. You know, yeah. so we let, you know, when you do the work we do, that is one of those wonderful moments is to think, oh my goodness me, you know, here's someone who, you know, if we hadn't have acted, you know, uh, you know, and all those people hadn't have acted in the way they did, this person might not be here today. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. That's, that's enormously gratifying. Uh, the question I had was the fact that Body Shop decided to stand on the soapbox and take on this issue, of course, articulating the views of others. There has been a lot of movement about human rights defenders, you know, companies are being asked not to use strategic legal actions uh, against public participation, the so-called slap cases is one such example, or speaking up for, uh, you know, those who are victims. I mean, uh, you know, the whole, I mean, here in, in the US where I am now, I noticed that a lot of companies spoke up for refugee rights and asylum rights when the Trump administration cracked down on them. Uh, and so this whole idea of using your position and power of influence to speak up, do you think we have reached some kind of a sweet spot? Do you expect more companies to speak up on climate, more companies to speak up on human rights? You worked on Tibet in the past. Do you think people are going to speak up on Uyghurs? Uh, do you see that as an optimistic scenario? Or do you think that these are still aberrations and the exceptions driven largely by corporate executives because of that personal conscience? Man, I look at it. It's an excellent question. Look, if I took my direct experience, I, and, and that's probably what I need to do is, is separate my, my aspiration or my hope from well, what am I evidencing through my day-to-day work. Um, I'd say my aspiration and my hope is that, you know, corporate actors will do that, not just because it's a, you know, individual's commitment, and that was a need erotic. And I think that was the intent of your question, right? There was yeah. no question that it was a need erotic's personal commitment to mm. seeing human rights promoted that gave me the resources and the platform as, you know, the international corporate, international um, human rights campaigner for the body shop. Uh, to run the Ugoni campaign um, and to challenge, you know, to have one corporate challenge another corporate uh, in terms of their human rights performance. Uh, it was an extraordinary thing to be doing in the 1990s. Uh, fast forward to where we are today, um, you know, I think we we are we've seen a, an incredible transformation for some parts of our economy and those 
you know, those business actors in those, in those parts of the economy as a result of the UN guiding principles, as a result of uh, investor, increasing investor challenging and interest in, as a result of, you know, and, and in some ways, you know, I, I really do appreciate uh, the change that seems to be possible from strategic resolution at AGNs. It's very interesting to see what's possible with that. Uh, and, and in some ways, that's maybe perhaps a countervailing um, uh, technique to the slap technique yeah? uh, that, that in terms of looking to produce positive outcomes in terms of corporate behaviour. Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic. But then, you know, then when we do this work, you know, I, I don't think you can have a long-term career without being glass half full person. You yeah. have to constantly be optimistic and look for the successes that are there. And that's where I evidence what I've seen in the Australian context in response to the modern slavery. I've been pleasantly surprised at the number of times that uh, the conversation has opened with what do we need to do to comply with the Act. Mm. And so it's, an, it, it's a, yeah, to be fair, it's a reluctant and it's a minimal compliance question around responding to yet another piece of legislation that's, that's come through where, as business actors, we're being asked to solve society's ills. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, yeah, that's the tone and I've heard it, I continue to hear it. Now, the flip side is the wonderful times there are that you start with that, but you're able to lead those senior leaders, you know, those executive members into a conversation around But Why would you just look at modern slavery? Because that sits on a spectrum. Don't you want to know where you may potentially also be risking harming people? Because this is fundamentally about people and you in your business day to day, um, not wanting to harm people, uh, not just your employees, and I think that's a well-honed conversation. That that's you know in some ways a good basis is that that safety conversation. But this is about all the people that you touch and how you touch them. Um, you know, don't you want to know where else those other risks are? And you know, human rights risk lens being a fresh lens, uh, and it does. You know, it does, and and that's you know, uh, we, you know, we as KPMG Australia, and you know, that that's been you know, part of my. Uh, ongoing project of, uh, around transformation and pushing the pushing the envelope on that. You know what's possible. Yeah, and you know we were acquired we were acquired five years ago. Um, you know, first two years had its challenges. I think we've we've spoken about that in the previous podcast for real mm-hmm. in terms of coming into KPMG. Um, but just what I've been able to experience and see in the in the last uh, last year and a half with my team working and supporting the KPMG Australia Human Rights Working Group, uh, and to have you know our Chief Risk Officer and our Chief Operating Officer and our CFO, you know that that, that he has one he has both of those in his one role, um, to hear them both. Um, you know, engage with human rights language and start to frame impacts, potential impacts on people and risk to people using human rights language is extraordinarily um, encouraging as a lifelong human rights campaigner. Uh, but really, to me, you know, and, and I really should, uh, um, you know, I'll just share the sort of sense of, you know, one of the conversations that my, my CFO here at CLO um, has in those working groups where he said, look, Richard, Yet again, we've just had an hour meeting and I've learnt, you know, X, Y, Z in terms of business and human rights. And and he said, but still, you know, each time it's great to learn, but gee, it makes me feel uncomfortable. 
But he said, that's okay, right? Because this is just something I have to understand and I have to get my head into as a future business leader and as a growing business leader. And to yeah. hear that response, you know, that, that, that gives me optimism. Yeah. No, that's a very sound reason to be optimistic about. And I, you're absolutely right that uh, we are all in this and we are trying to do this because we want to see a better tomorrow. And if we are not going to think of that, then there's no point to any of it. And it's very sad that, you know, uh, 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 what happened in Ogoniland is what has brought us here. Uh, these changes would have happened anywhere, but you need a tipping point. And to some extent, what happened with Shell and Nigeria and Ogoniland was that tipping point. And um, we only hope that, uh, you know, as I was talking to Nimo Basi, uh, who's uh, uh, from the Mother Earth uh, Foundation, yeah, yeah. And we had a very long ch chat a couple of days ago and he teaches in our courses often and he's a friend of the Institute. And he um, and, and in the conversation, we ended basically saying that, you know, ultimately we have to come for the day and look forward to the day where the GDP is not measured in Nigeria with the barrels of oil or the dollars in an account, but the laughter of children. And I, but that's that's the way mm. to move forward. And uh, thank you for all that you do, Richard. And, you know, thank you for carrying the flag and fighting the good fight. And all the very best to you in everything you do. Thank you, Sawil, and a pleasure to reflect with you 25 years later. <laughs>